As we've done each night at this time, we're going to take just a few moments and continue to put together this portrait of a generous giver, this portrait of a person who is becoming more like God, reflecting the character of Christ, and that he or she is learning the joy of giving. You can take some notes in your workbook on page 15 if you want to. You'll see the living giving principle there. I'll give that to you here in just a moment. Now, we've been in chapter 8. Tonight, we're going to move into chapter 9. I'm going to take one verse, verse 7. It's familiar to many. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that's one of those verses that is just packed full of truth. Let's take it an inside at a time. Number one, he purposes in his heart. This is the only place in the Bible that word is used. It's a word that means to make a deliberate decision. In other words, it's not impulsive. It's not something you do on the spur of the moment. It implies a process of deliberation, intentionality, as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity. In other words, a person doesn't give to the work of God. A person doesn't invest in kingdom ministry because he or she feels bullied or manipulated or with the motivation of guilt. That doesn't honor the Lord. The Lord is as interested in the motivation as he is with the gift. Not grudgingly or of necessity, God loves a cheerful giver. The word that's used there, you've heard this, is the word that for us is translated hilarious. God loves a hilarious. In other words, this is a joyful experience. Now, the old country preacher used to say, God loveth a cheerful giver, but he'll taketh from a grouch. That may be the case, but we do know that God desires that we begin to experience the joy, the adventure of giving, because God loves to give, and he wants us to be like him. Here's your living giving principle tonight. Giving should be prayerful, deliberate, and joyful. Giving should be prayerful, deliberate, and joyful. Prayerful. We need to become very serious in, in regards to giving. We often treat it very frivolously. We don't bring an intentionality to this thing. So before I give, before I make an investment in kingdom ministry, I need to be in an attitude of prayer. Lord, what would you have me to do? That's really the question. We've already established the fact that God owns all of our stuff. We're just managing it. So the question is, God, what do you want me to do with your stuff? Here's a need. God, do you desire me to meet that need? By the way, don't assume that God intends for you to give to every need. I don't believe that's the case. I think when a need presents itself, I should consider that need. I should pray about that need and then get a sense of direction from the Lord. If you're married, this is a partnership as you pray and seek the Lord's will together. Deliberate. I'm still growing as a giver, but I can tell you I started out and, and I was a poor giver. I, I, I was not a biblical giver. You know, I can remember... 
we had three kids, you know, I was in, in vocational ministry, a pastor, it's not really the profession you choose if you want to do well financially, you know, churches are good, but you understand that there are other rewards and benefits. I mean, there were days I can remember all I had was these three kids and then at the end of the month, a car payment, and that, that was it, you know, and, and these needs would come along and I would immediately dismiss the need, God, it's not me, you're not talking to me, I can't possibly be involved. And then I kind of went to the other extreme. I thought, well, I got to give to everything. Got to lead by example here. So I would just throw a 20 at it. I usually would have a $20 bill in my wallet, hear about a need, a mission need, or, or a personal need, and just throw a 20 at it. And again, I was giving haphazardly. I was giving impulsively. And there was not this deliberation, this intentionality. But God continued to grow me in my understanding of this adventure of giving. A couple of takeaways. Number one, have I studied what the Word of God has to say in relation to my giving? Whenever I come to God with a question, Lord, what is your will for my life? How do I respond to this need? Well, I always begin with God's Word. God's will is going to be clearly communicated through His Word more than any other place. So you always start with the Word of God. So I challenge you, have you been a student of God's Word in regard to giving? Have you looked at what God says in regard to giving? Well, obviously, there's so much there. And let me just take one principle. This one's tucked away in Proverbs chapter 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, what's the principle? I want to honor the Lord with my possessions. I do so by giving to God first. I give to God First, that little word or phrase, first fruits. Again, this was written to people that lived in this agrarian culture. I have 10 new lambs. The first lamb belongs to the Lord. I have 10 new goats. The first goat belongs to the Lord. I have 100 bushels of wheat. Now, my family is going to live on this wheat until the next harvest. But the first 10 bushels go to the Lord. Let's say uh, Patty and I invited you to come over to the trailer for dinner one night. Now, you can't come all at the same time, okay? So just, uh, just a few at a time. We actually have a little table that seats four. We're sitting there, and you're sitting, and we're enjoying our meal together. And you comment to my wife, this is a delicious meal. And I say, it certainly is. It was even better when we had it last night. <laughs> now, you're too polite to say anything, but I know what you're thinking. You You've served me leftovers. I'm a weird guy. I kind of like leftovers. But if I really wanted to honor a person, I probably wouldn't serve you leftovers. But you know what we do with the Lord? We buy everything that we want to buy, and at the end of the month, we give God the leftovers. Oh, I wish I could give more. Well, I'm not sure that's true. If we give to God first, and here's what I've learned, he will bless what remains, and you'll have what you need and more. See, the promise is an abundance. Now, just to be clear here, I've never had bats overflowing with new wine in my backyard, okay? That's not, again, this is an agrarian culture, and that's the context. But what's the takeaway? God says, I'm going to bless you with an abundance because you have honored me. You say, Greg, you mean I give first, not sure that I'm going to have enough? We call it faith, don't we? Obey God 
and trust God. Where are you really trusting God? And if you can't trust him in something as mundane as the finances, how can he give you more authority and responsibility in, in kingdom matters? Do I prayerfully seek God's will in relation to my giving? And again, we've challenged you as a couple to cultivate a prayer time together. By the way, this is a great exercise for your children. Our children need to learn to handle money biblically. Early on, we involved our children in giving decisions. We let them pray with us as a family and participate with us. Never forget, we were hosting, I think it was our second Life Action Conference. My son was early elementary, and beginning of the week, we got together and we said, as a family, we're going to pray and see what God wants us to give to invest in this ministry. These folks have come to minister to us, and we want to support this ministry. And I challenged my children to pray as well. At the end of the week, our youngest came to us and said, God has led me to give all of my savings. He had a little jar in his room where he was saving money. Now, I'm going to just be honest with you. My first inclination, oh, son, you don't need to do that. You know, you, you, no, you've worked hard. You've saved this money. You're going to buy. That was my first inclination. And then God lovingly rebuked me. How dare I rob my son of the joy of learning sacrificial giving. And I'm so thankful we listened to the Lord. And for him, that was a great step forward in his spiritual growth and development. Am I willing to obey any direction from God in relation to my giving? You say, Greg, I'm hearing this theme, obedience. What I'm told to do, when I'm told to do it, with a right heart attitude. That is roughly a paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Giving to the Lord. God loves a cheerful giver. Interesting phrase, God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, we say, well, God loves everybody. He does, I believe that. Well, why would it say God loves a cheerful giver when we know that God loves everybody? I think there is something special about this love that he's communicating to a cheerful giver. Why? Because we are acting so much like him at that moment. Go ahead and take your Bible and find with me Matthew chapter 5. And in your workbook, we're on page 14 tonight. We're going to talk about gaining a clear conscience. Gaining a clear conscience. What is this phrase, clear conscience? What is the conscience? What is its function? And what does it mean to have a clear conscience? We've been spending our mornings with your pastoral staff and thoroughly enjoying them. You have some gifted men who love the Lord and love you, and we've been enriched by our time together. We were chatting at lunch. The pastor mentioned he liked to golf, and I play a little golf now and then. Well, I heard about a pastor who was just really passionate about golf. I mean, he loved it like almost nothing else. He'd had a busy couple of months and had not been able to get away for any golf, and it was just about to kill him. He woke up on a Sunday morning, and he had a bad thought. I'm going to pretend I'm sick today and go play golf. Told his wife, I'm just not feeling well, honey. Call my chairman of deacons, see if we can find a, a, you know, a substitute to come and preach today. And she said, I'll take care of that. You just stay there, and you get well. And he watched them get in the car and drive off. And as soon as they were out of sight, he jumped out of bed, put on his golf clothes, ran to the garage, got his clubs, threw them in the back of his car, and took off. 
that he went to a neighboring town so that no one would recognize him. Now, at this point, his guardian angel, who's been watching all of this behavior, flies directly to the presence of God and says, Now, Lord, I know you know everything. You know what your servant is doing. Lord, he's lying. He's shirking his responsibility. Lord, what are we going to do about that? Lord says, I've got it under control. Picture returns to the earth. Here he is setting up on that first tee. It's a 400-yard par four. He cranks that driver, hits that ball, and watches as his drive hits the front of the green and then rolls into the cup. Hole in one, double eagle. Now the angel, a little frustrated, Lord, I know you just allowed him to do that, but I don't get it, God. Why in the world would you give him a hole in one after the way he's acted? And the Lord smiled and said, who's he going to tell? Yeah, you got to work on that one. You got to think through that one a little bit. All right, here's our revival truth tonight. A desire of the revived heart is to maintain a clear conscience before God and others. As the pastor said, I want to echo, it was so encouraging to see so many standing here last night, acknowledging that you needed to forgive, crying out to God. And as he said, you've begun a journey. This is a process of forgiveness. There'll still be hard days, but you've made a choice. You're going to persevere, and God's going to bring healing to those hurts. That was part one in this message on relationships. Part two tonight is directed to those who have been the ones who have done the hurting, the ones who have injured others in some way, wronged others some way. And our goal is to have a clear conscience. In other words, we've got to make this right. All right, you're with me in Matthew chapter 5. You know Matthew chapter 5, students of the Bible, Sermon on the Mount. Greatest sermon ever preached, the poorest name we ever gave to a sermon, all right? It was only called the Sermon on the Mount because it begins, he stood on a mountain and began to speak. Let me give you a better title, Christ's Inaugural Address. The king has come to establish his kingdom upon the earth, and he's calling the kingdom citizens together to outline for them the foundations of the kingdom he's come to establish. You get down to verse 17, and here's the first, or one of the the early sections. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is important. I haven't come to do away with Old Testament laws and commands. I've come to fulfill them. What does that mean? Well, as we look at the teaching that follows, it certainly implies I've come to internalize those commands. Internalize. In the Old Testament, the focus was on the outward appearance. But I've come to say what's on the inside is as important as what is on the outside. So later on, he'll say, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. You should not have a sexual relationship with a person other than your wife. But I say to you, if a man lusts in his heart, desires or fantasizes in his heart, that man has committed adultery. So he's internalized the law. The other aspect of fulfilling the law, I think, is in the area of motivation. I'm going to empower you 
to keep the law. I'm going to give you the ability to live out these commandments in a way that you've never known before. And I think it's fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit and the grace we talked about, the desire and motivation to obey the Lord. All right, so with that background, look at verse 21. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. All right, pause just a moment. He's quoting Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. He's quoting here the Sixth Commandment. You shall not commit murder. In other words, you shall not take an innocent life. He said, up to this point, how has this been fulfilled? How has this been applied? If I murder someone, if I take an innocent life, then I'm going to be held accountable. I'll be brought before a judge. I'll be tried, possibly condemned, possibly executed. So he says, up to this point, this is how you've understood the sixth commandment. Now, verse 22, but I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now remember, he's come to internalize the law as part of fulfilling it. He said, in the past, if you committed murder, you'd be hauled in before a judge. In the kingdom that I'm establishing, my expectations for you, if you are angry with another person, it is as offensive to me, and you would be prosecuted for doing so. Just being angry at somebody is now considered a sin. But he doesn't stop there. If in your anger you insult your brother, verse 22, you insult your brother. And he's using here an Aramaic word, raka. And it literally translates to call someone empty-headed. It would be the equivalent of calling someone stupid or calling them an idiot. Again, you just lose your temper, you're frustrated, you're stupid, you idiot. Jesus said, this is serious enough for you to be taken before the council. Now, the council was the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, and they had the power to enforce the death penalty. But he takes it one more step. Whoever says to his brother... Brother in Christ, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, the phrase, you fool, was the most slanderous thing that you could say in those days. It's basically calling a person a godless reprobate. It's the equivalent of you looking at someone and just telling them to go to you know where. You're so mad. Jesus said the seriousness of that offense condemns you to hell. And everybody gulped, I'm sure, when he said that. Now look at verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now pause a moment. I imagine after this statement, if you and I could have seen the crowd, they would have been doing this. Because what he described to them was unthinkable. Now here's the setting. He says, if you bring your gift to the altar, now we're talking about the temple, that great temple there built by Herod in Jerusalem. Now getting to that temple was no easy chore. You may have traveled 
two or three days' journey to get to the temple to offer sacrifice. If you were a Jew living overseas, as many were, you may have traveled weeks to get to Jerusalem for that privilege of offering sacrifice in the temple. You would have arrived at the temple early in the morning. The first thing you did was to purchase a sacrifice, and this was very expensive. Even if it was just birds, but usually it was a lamb or a young goat. Some as large as a bull were sacrificed. So this is a very significant investment. Now you've been standing in line all day because thousands of people are there doing exactly what you're doing. So you've been waiting in line. And finally, the priest motions you over and you've got your little lamb and you're walking over. There's that priest, his white tunic is splattered with blood because all he's done all day long is offer these sacrifices to the Lord. Now you're ready to offer your sacrifice. And as you're standing there, you remember a brother. This is a fellow believer. A brother has something against you. You spoke in anger. You cheated them. You wronged them in some way. And Jesus says, if there you remember, a brother has something against you. And here was the shocking statement. Leave your sacrifice there. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and offer sacrifice. Now, Lord, it would be a lot more convenient if we just get this over with. And then I go take care of business. But Jesus doesn't give us that privilege. Why? Because if you and I go through the motion of offering gifts to him knowing that we are harboring sin in our hearts. He doesn't receive those gifts. Pastor, I shudder to think what Sunday morning offerings might look like if God's people were to truly take this principle to heart. Holding sin in my heart, knowing I've wronged another and not making it right, nullifies any worship acts that I bring to the Lord. In other places of Scripture, this is described as having a clear conscience. 1 Corinthians 4.4, Paul writes, my conscience is clear. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. The writer of Hebrews 13.18, we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. So you see the repetition of this little phrase, a clear conscience, a clear conscience. Let's just uh, describe, what what do we mean by a clear conscience? Here's our, our goal tonight. There's no one alive whom I have knowingly wronged, offended, or hurt in any way, which I have not sought to make it right with God and them. A person who can say that is a person who has a clear conscience. No one alive whom I've knowingly wronged, offended, or hurt, and I've not sought to make it right with God and with them. Let's talk about the importance of conscience for just a moment. Number one, the Holy Spirit uses your conscience to convict you of sinful attitudes and actions. Please do not buy the lie that you are nothing more than an evolved animal. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told that we, human beings, are made in the image and likeness of God. There is something sacred because we are the direct creations of God made in His image and in his likeness. Fallen, yes. Sinners, yes. But still made in the image of God. Part of what makes us unique is we have that 
conscience. That, that, that internal moral GPS that God uses to convict us of sinful attitudes and actions. Romans 9.1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Paul can say if I was lying to you, I would know I was lying. My conscience would show me. Acts 24.16, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. So, the conscience serves in a sense as an internal amplifier for us to hear God's voice. Let me illustrate. You can hear me now back there, and I'm not having to shout or scream because my voice is being amplified. Uh, there's a microphone, a little battery pack and transmitter back here. It sends a signal back to that soundboard. That soundboard pumps the signal through an electronic device called an amplifier. It comes through the wires and out the speakers. My voice is being amplified. Your conscience is God's amplifier. This is God's uh, 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 vehicle, his tool for speaking to us, for communicating to us, specifically in this area of right and wrong. Now, word of warning here, word of caution. We can damage our conscience. We can damage our conscience. We were in Fort Wayne, Indiana a couple years ago. It's a downtown inner city church. It was a great meeting just uh, because these folks weren't playing any games. They were desperate for God. Well, they set us up on the parking lot like here, and the parking lot was right next to a railroad track. I mean, about 50 feet, pretty close. Well, Friday night, Patty and I slept fine. Saturday night, we slept fine. We went to bed Sunday night. Monday morning at about 2.35, I know exactly the time, we woke up. The trailer was shaking and horns were blaring. For a moment, I thought the rapture had come, you know. It was a freight train coming through. We jumped up, you know, and then laughed at ourselves. The next night, 2.35 again. Trailer started shaking, loud noises. We woke up again, of course, not in the panic this time. It's interesting. By the third night, we barely stirred. By the fourth night, I never heard that train. As a matter of fact, I never heard that train again. Now, is it because that engineer took mercy on me, slowed his train down to a crawl, stopped blowing? No. The train was still there as loud as before, but I tuned it out. I tuned it out. I wasn't listening anymore. In Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, three times, the writer says, today, now hear that word, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Some of you are sitting, listening politely, taking notes, laughing at my sorry jokes. But you know what? You're not hearing from God. And let me tell you why. You've said no so many times. Your heart is hard. Your heart has become hard. Now we can reverse that. But until you start going back and saying yes, where you've said no, you're going to continue to be immune to God's voice. 
One more insight into the conscience. The opposite of a clear conscience is a guilty conscience. You say that's kind of a duh statement, you know. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Now, I hope that you've heard this consistently in my teaching. It is not the will of God for His children to live in guilt. There is no place for guilt in the heart or the life of the believer. Part of what Jesus Christ secured on the cross was you and I being free from guilt. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Some of you were raised in faith traditions where you were taught you need to feel guilty. And the more guilty you feel, the more godly you are. Some of you struggle with guilt when you're not feeling guilty. You feel guilty because you're not feeling guilty. I mean, it's as messed up as that. Hear me. God does not motivate his people with guilt. The invitation of Jesus is to come follow me. Come follow me. He's a shepherd, not a rancher. Come follow me. God does not want you to be living in guilt. If you're struggling with guilt, it's because you're in disobedience. And until you begin to align your will with his will and live in obedience, consistent obedience, you will continue to wallow in guilt. All right, let's pause. Got a few questions. You know, I like to ask questions. By the way, parents, coaching tip. When confronting your children, disciplining your children, begin with questions. Questions speak to the conscience. Accusations harden the will. Start with questions. Is your conscience clear with your family? You've heard a lot of teaching in these days about family. Is your conscience clear with the person you're sitting next to right now? Is your conscience clear? Or have you wronged them in some way and not sought to make it right? How about your children? Is your conscience clear with your children? Have you been disciplining in anger? Let me give you a little homework project here. Go home and ask your children, have I ever made a promise to you that I didn't keep? Now get ready. We're going to go fishing one day, I promise. And years have passed. Oh, I got busy. But they never forgot. Is your conscience clear with your family? Is your conscience clear with your church family? Is there anyone in this building tonight, right now, that you have wronged and not sought to make it right? How about former church members? I was kind of glad they moved on. But is your heart right with God? Do you need to seek forgiveness? How about your workplace? Are you giving your boss your best? Are you a redemptive presence in the workplace? Or do you find yourself with that chorus of complainers? Are you giving your boss the honest day's work for that honest day's pace? Uh, How about bosses? Are you treating your employees biblically? Well, I know there's rules, and I know that we need to challenge people, but are you doing it in a Christ-like way? Is there a Christ-like presence in the way that you lead? How about the lost world? 
What kind of gospel have you lived before your neighbor? Would he or she see enough of Christ in you by your dealings and interactions with them that they would desire a relationship with Christ? How about the people you play softball with or bowl with? Have you treated the coaches that have been giving their time to coach your children in athletics? Is your conscience clear with the lost world? Your past. High school sweetheart? College roommate? Ex-husband? Ex-wife? Is your conscience clear in regard to those relationships? Let's talk about clearing the conscience. Here's the good news. Number one, confess your sin to God and repent. It always begins with God. Remember the other night, showed you the vertical line, the horizontal line, vertical first. We get right with God first, and now we have what we need to be right with others. Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience? from dead works to serve the living God. Only God can cleanse your conscience. That's again what the cross secured for us. I take ownership of my sin. I repent. I'm going this way. I stop. I do the about face. And I'm going this way in obedience to God. It begins with the Lord after David's horrendous fall, his immoral relationship with Bathsheba. He was culpable in the death of her husband. When God finally brings the brokenness and there's repentance, Psalm 51, 4, David says against you, you only have I sinned. He'd wronged a lot of other folks, but he had to start with God. That's where you begin this journey to a clear conscience. Number one, now that we've talked about the vertical relationship, the focus is on the horizontal relationships. How do I make it right with you? Number one, seek forgiveness from those you have wronged. Jesus said, go to your brother and be reconciled. Now, this is the process of reconciliation. Last night, we talked about forgiveness. That's between you and God. You forgive so that you can be right with God. The desire now is to bring reconciliation, to Try to repair or restore the relationship. So it starts with you seeking forgiveness. Now, I'm a simple guy. I mean, you gotta, you got to really break it down for me. I can even mess up something like an apology, all right? So I'm going to make it as simple as I know. Number one, be specific regarding the offense. When you come to seek forgiveness from somebody, tell them what you're seeking forgiveness for. Don't assume they know. You're thinking this, they have a list of a dozen things, and they're, you know, wondering which one are you going to get right? It's not enough just to say, I'm sorry. I lied. I broke a promise. I spoke to you in anger. Be specific. Number two, take full responsibility for your behavior, not blaming others or excusing your actions. I had not been married very long. And I did something, I knew I hurt my wife, hurt her feelings, knew I had to make it right, so I sat down with her and I said, sweetheart, I, I shouldn't have done that, I was wrong to do that. But you know, if you hadn't said what you said, I, I, I wouldn't have done what I did. You're kinder than she was. 
It just made her more mad. Rightfully so. I was blaming her for my sin. You have to take ownership and responsibility for your sin. Now, they may have sin as well that they have to take ownership for, but that is the domain of the Holy Spirit to convict, not yours. You're taking ownership of your sin. Come with an attitude of humility. It's easier to say, I am sorry, than to say, will you forgive me? And I'm not trying to be legalistic about this, but I have found through the years, humbling ourselves and using the phrase, will you forgive me? That is a powerful phrase. Let me give you this word picture from Proverbs 18, 19. An offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. Now, when somebody hurts you, what do you do? The wall goes up, right? The wall goes up. You distance yourself emotionally. Men, I know you're smart enough to understand this, but when you sit down next to your wife and you put your arm around her and she stiffens and you scoot a little closer and she moves a little farther... Ding, 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 ding. All right, something's wrong here, right? Something's going on here because a woman's physical body is an extension of her emotions. We're not like that. But she is. She's distanced from us emotionally because we've done something to hurt her. Now, as a good man, how do I get through the wall? I go find me a battering ram, all right? I'm going to knock that sucker down. I'm going to beat her with the word of God. I'm going to try to intimidate her. That's not going to work. It's not going to work with your teenage children either. So I come to the door and I, I messed up. I messed up really bad. I don't deserve another chance, but I'm asking you to let me back in. I want to restore this relationship. I want the privilege of doing life with you again. And I'm going to take ownership for this. And by the grace of God, we're going to work together through this. This is the posture of humility that needs to be communicated when you and I are making this decision to reconcile. Spring of 2013, we were in Jefferson City, Missouri. Here's what a young lady wrote. God found me with an unforgiving heart. He showed me the reason I could not forgive others was because it was I who needed to seek forgiveness. My husband and I are newlyweds, just shy of one year. When we first met and began dating, I was unfaithful to him. That was four years ago, and until this week, I had not confessed this to him. There were several times over the years I felt compelled to confess, but I always found some justification or reason not to. Thursday night, that's the clear conscience message tonight. Thursday night, God called me out. I spent the majority of that night bargaining with God to let me out of this. Finally, around 1 a.m., I gave in. I woke my husband up, and I confessed this thing that I knew would break his heart. I was terrified that this would surely be the end. After a few moments of silence, he prayed over me and asked God to clear my conscience and bring me peace. I was blown away. I know God will help us to be healed in our marriage and has better things in store for our future than would have been possible if I had not sought his forgiveness. Number two, where necessary, make restitution for any damage you have caused. Make restitution. 
What does restitution look like? If I've lied about you, gossiped about you, not only do I seek your forgiveness, I go back to try to repair your reputation with the people that I gossiped to. If I've stolen from somebody, I need to repay. This is restitution. You remember the story of the wee little man? What was his name? Zacchaeus, that's right. Climbs up on the tree to see Jesus. Jesus knew his name. Hey, Zacchaeus, he knows my name. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. And there Zacchaeus receives Jesus as the true Messiah. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. I find that interesting. It was after he verbalized repentance, I'm going to make this right, that Jesus acknowledged true salvation has come to this house today. Number three, where possible, seek to restore the relationship. Where possible. That word or that phrase comes from my understanding of Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. They may not be ready. And by the way, you've got to be willing to give them time, give them space, especially if there's been a lot of hurt because they're going to watch you for a while to see if this is just a fad or if this is a true life change. You're going to have to give them time or space. And then there may be situations, situations like sexual abuse where the idea of reconciliation is impractical, not this side of heaven. Sin is very messy messes us up. And that's why God has given you godly men, pastors, to help you navigate some of these issues. And these men would be a source of wisdom and counsel for you. Number four, go forward with a sense of urgency. Again, you hear that in the text. Leave your sacrifice right now. Go be reconciled to your brother. There's a sense of urgency communicated. Why? Number one, it's hindering your relationship with God. Your relationship with God right now is suffering because of what you've done to other people. He took it personally, continues to take it personally. You become a stumbling block to that person. The battle with bitterness we discussed last night, you have put them in that situation. Now, they're responsible again for their actions and their decisions, but you're the cause. You know, Jesus had some hard things to say about stumbling blocks. This is just out of my life experience. The longer you wait, the harder it is. The longer you wait, the harder it is. Now, again, because I've had these uh, conversations a time or two, I've heard lots of excuses. Number one, Greg, it happened a long time ago. This is not going to be me that was, that was years and years ago. I don't find anywhere in Scripture that teaches sin evaporates. Can you tell me a verse somewhere that describes sin evaporating? Sin doesn't just go away. It must be repented of, confessed, and forsaken. Second excuse. They moved away. I'm off the hook. Really? Just like sin doesn't evaporate, why do you think that distance diminishes the sinfulness of sin? They're not in this church anymore. You thought you're off the hook. No. 
You need to find that person. If humanly possible, you need to find that person and you need to make this right. I was teaching these principles in the last church that I pastored. We had a Hispanic woman in that church named Norma. Now, I always knew that Norma was calling me because when I would answer the phone, I would hear, Hermano Greg, Hermano Greg, Brother Greg. Yes, Norma. You know, last Sunday you were teaching us that if we wronged somebody, we needed to make it right. Norma grew up in El Paso on the streets. She was part of a gang. She said, as you were preaching, God brought to my mind that there was a girl in high school and I made her life miserable. I made her life miserable. And I want to make this right with her. And I said, God, I have no idea where she is. Norma's living now in the Dallas area. This was back in El Paso. She prayed, said, God, if you will help me, I will seek her forgiveness. Norma works in the police department. Norma's the person you come to when you have to pay your tickets. So one day, that week, just a day or two later, this woman shows up at her window and is going to pay a speeding fine. And she says, I need to see your driver's license. She says, I see that you're from El Paso. She said, yes, that's where I live. Well, I know this is a long shot. El Paso is a big place, but there's a person there I'm trying to reach. Would you by, happen, uh, by chance happen to know so-and-so? And she said, well, actually, she lives down the street from me. She said, would you have any way that I could contact her? And she said, I, I, I think I've got her number here. And Norma was able to call that woman, seek her forgiveness. And then she called me excited. I was so excited, I put her on the platform the next Sunday and let her tell the entire church, listen, if you are determined to make this right, God will move heaven and earth to make it happen. It's such a small thing to you. To you. Things have gotten better, or maybe your heart's just gotten harder. Now, here's the tough one. It will cost me money. So, Greg, you don't understand. I could be fined for this at my job. I could be reprimanded. I could lose salary. I could lose my job. So, here's the question with this idea of scales. What price are you going to put on a clear conscience? What price are you going to put on being right with God? What are you going to decide? What's your price? In our first summit, my third church, one of my best friends in that church, he was a deacon in our church, a leader. He was a, a local attorney. He walked into my office and he said, God spoke to me last night on this matter of a clear conscience. He said, I need you to pray for me. A couple months ago, I defended a client. I won the case, but I withheld information from the other attorney, information that I should have made available. I withheld it. He said, please pray for me. I'm going to call the judge today, tell him what I did, and I don't know what's going to happen. Could be a reprimand. I could lose my, my license to practice law. He said, but I got to obey God. I got to make this right. He called the judge. The judge said he would review it couple of anxious weeks and then he called me back and he said the judge called today and said the information I withheld would not have made a difference in his ruling I have received rightfully so a reprimand but I can sleep tonight knowing that I have a clear conscience what are you willing to do to make it right with God to obey God 
I will do it later. No, you won't. Today, if you hear his voice, somebody, now, it's always best to have a face-to-face. That's always the best. If you can't do that, then a telephone call is the second best. If you don't have a phone number, email is the least effective, but at least start there. Some of you need to start getting a word out tonight to somebody because you've got to make some things right. He or she is not a Christian. Greg, my boss won't get this. He won't understand. She won't, on to, won't understand. Well, what a great testimony to that person. What a great way to show them the reality of God in your life. I was more right and they were more wrong. Well, number one, I'm not sure we're entirely objective about who's more right and who's more wrong. But even if that's the case, you still got to take ownership for your sin. It happened before I was saved. I understand that's under the blood, and, and this is, I'm going to park in the realm of conscience, but it may be even from a past where you were lost that God wants you to go back and make something right as a testimony to that person. Let me give you some directions here. We've been ending our services in different ways each night. We're going to end it in a very different way tonight. In just a moment, I'm going to pray over us. And then I'm going to ask you to find three people in the room, not members of your immediate family, three people in the room, and I want you to share with them within 30 seconds one thing that God's done in your life. You've got to be quick. It's going to be painful for some of you. You can't talk that fast, all right? You've got to be quick. 30 seconds, all right? I mean, you're going to share with them, and then they're going to share with you, all right? Three different people, just a 30-second conversation. Here's what God has taught me. Here's what God has done in my life. Now, this is going to kind of prime the pump because Sunday morning we're going to have a testimony service and let folks share with the entire congregation what God has done in their lives. So I want you to get used to testifying in the event that God prompts you on Sunday morning to share with the congregation. Now, stay with me here. There's going to be chaos in the room, all right? It's going to be a lot, you know, that, that buzz and people talking and moving around the room. Now, watch. If there is a person in this room tonight that you have wronged and God has spoken to you clearly and you need to seek their forgiveness, I want you to find them, get you a corner, ask them to join you in the prayer room, find a Sunday school room, And begin the process tonight of seeking forgiveness, of making this right. My challenge to those who need to be reconciled with someone outside of this room is between now and Sunday. Make the call. Fire off the email. Begin the process of reconciliation. We just have a few more days together. People are praying. God is doing a deep work in the hearts of people you need to now begin to allow that work to move outside of this church and into this community.